Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning. Sermon text for today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the, the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we have been made alive forever with you. God, by your grace, as we just sang, we are saved. This is the gospel. This is the new life that you called us into. The new identity and hope and confidence. Father God, let us walk in this confidence by your spirit today. We are children of the living God sealed by the Holy Spirit and secure in your unshakable love to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Well, good morning. We had to pull out more chairs. I don't know where you people all came from, but we're glad you're here. Uh, I have talked more in the last 48 hours than I feel like I have in 48 years. Um, <laughs> My voice is reflective of that, so Lord willing, we'll make it through. I uh, just taught a youth class on how to read the Bible, and it was the best class ever, right, youth? <laughs> Amen? Yes. I told them that the adults don't respond when I ask questions, so they're trying to disciple you in that. So, just saying. Uh, but great to have you all here. If you're new, we've been walking through the book of Galatians for several months now, and we are venturing deeper into chapter 3 of Galatians, and we really come to this text that at face value is a little bit confusing. The language is a little bit hard to wrap our minds around what Paul's saying, but in this text this morning, Paul is getting at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. 
and thereby kind of getting to the root of the issue that was plaguing these Galatian believers. The central issue of Christianity and in religion itself is how do we come into a right relationship with God? And this is exactly what Paul is kind of fleshing out in our text this morning. And as we've seen week after week, this whole letter is contrasting these two alternative ideas about how we can be in right relationship with God. Is it by faith or is it by works? And once again, Paul is going to expand his argument to show the absurdity of seeking righteousness through works of the law. But before we dive into that argument, I want to look at how Paul describes this right relationship with God that we are seeking. First, in verse 11, it's called to be justified before God. Paul says it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And to be justified by God is is the exact opposite of being condemned by God. It is to be declared righteous, to be accepted, to stand in his favor. And this is clearly of first importance, right? To be right with God. And even just as human beings, we have this instinctive desire to be in favor with others. Friends with coworkers, children with parents, employees with their boss. We long for rightness in our relationships. And in in the same way, though, by nature, we rebel against God. There is something in us that longs to be right with him, that longs for, as Paul says, justification, So the first description of being in a right relationship with God is to be justified before God. And the second description of the person who finds this right relationship with God is that he shall live or he shall gain life. And we get this from verse 11, which is one of those hard-to-translate verses. When you go from the Greek into the English, it says in your Bibles, most likely, the righteous shall live by faith. But if you have one of those Bibles with really cool notes, there's this alternative translation. And I think it's a little more clear. It says, the one who by faith is righteous will live. The righteousness that comes by faith will produce life. And then in the same way in verse 12, in reference to the law, we read, the one who does them, that is, all the things of the law, shall live by them, shall find life through them. And so there are these two claims of life. Both quotes from the Old Testament, one saying righteousness through faith will bring about this life, and the other claiming that one who obeys the law shall live. And the life that's being referred to here when we're in a right relationship with God is not simply physical life, but spiritual and eternal. Not only life in this age, but in the age to come. And if we want to define what eternal life is, it's a little easier. We can just listen to Jesus in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the one or the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. So justification means to be in favor with God and eternal life means to be in fellowship with God. And these two are intricately connected. We cannot have fellowship with God until we're in favor with God. And once we're in favor with him, fellowship with him is granted to us. And so the central question must be, how can man enter the favor and the fellowship of God? Or in Paul's terms, how can we be justified and receive eternal life? And Paul is going to plainly answer these questions, but the reason he has to answer these questions is because people have and they still do believe that there are alternatives to justification by faith. And they support those alternatives with Scripture. These Judaizers, the Jewish Christians saying we still need to follow the law, weren't just making stuff up. They were quoting Scripture. They were quoting the law and the prophets to make their claim of the necessity of works. So they were not wrong in their quoting of Scripture, but they were wrong in their application. Wrong in seeing the overarching narrative of God in redemption. And so Paul places these two paths, you might say, these two claims of life before us in this text. As I said, verse 11 and 12 are both from the Old Testament. They're both claims of life, but they're not the same. In verse 11, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. In verse 12, he who does them, all these requirements of the law, shall live by them or find life through them. The first verse is from the prophet Habakkuk 2.4 and the second from Leviticus 18.5. So both are the word of God and both come with this promise of life. The claims of life are not different, but the roads to these promised, to the promised life could not be more opposite. The first promises life to the believer, the second to the doer. The first makes faith the way of salvation. The second works. The first says that only God can justify because the whole function of faith is to trust in the work of God. And the second seems to imply that we can manage on our own, that we can justify ourselves through the law. And so it appears that we have these two alternatives. And on face value, it can be confusing, confusing, but I want to be clear here that Scripture is not confused. Scripture is not contradictory. We may be confused. We may perceive some contradiction, but that is not a Scripture problem. That's a me problem. I almost said you problem, but that seemed unkind. <laughs> it's a me problem. It's not you, it's me. So as we discussed last week, salvation through faith was always the plan. It wasn't the backup plan. It was always the plan. And the law was always part of that plan. 
And we're gonna get more into the purpose of the law next week, but the basic point of the law was to expose our sinfulness and to magnify the righteousness of Christ as the only human being who could ever fulfill the law perfectly. But for these Judaizers, steeped in the Old Testament and the Mosaic law, it doesn't appear as though the law, it does appear as though the law promises life. If you just read the law at points, it does. They saw Jesus, they believed in Jesus, but they couldn't comprehend the reality that he was the fulfillment of the law. That the purpose of the law was always to point us to him. That's why the Judaizers and and so many Jews to this day believe that they can be righteous through the law. They've zeroed in, they've focused on the law, but they've missed Jesus or minimized Jesus. He's a good rabbi. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. He's a wise counselor, but he's no savior. That's our business. They looked at the righteous requirements of the law and they said to themselves, we've got this. We've got it. But the very law itself and the prophets themselves, these people that they were reading made it abundantly clear that you do not have this. You don't have it. Because there's a catch. This is what Paul's getting at here by putting them side by side. Even if justification through the law was possible, if life is being promised through the law, there's one small, little, tiny problem. I like to call it perfection. That's a problem. You have to be spotless, blameless, perfectly obedient to the law to have any chance of life through the law. Which is why Paul begins this text in in verse 10 saying, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul's, he's just dropping Old Testament over and over, pulls from Deuteronomy 27.6, which pronounces a solemn curse on anyone who fails to keep every commandment in the law perfectly. So, this is going to be a problem, right? That's a problem. Not just for the Gentile sinners, but for the righteous Jews, Because justification through the law isn't based upon this sliding scale of law-abiding in comparison to a worse sinner, right? It's judged against the perfect holiness of God. And so the underlying theological reality Paul is getting at here is the universality of sin, And Paul fleshed this idea out in Romans chapter 1 when he says, there is no distinction, and he's talking about between Jews and Gentiles. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
This is the state of every human being on earth. We have broken the commandments of God and thereby brought ourselves under the curse of the law. And this isn't just the irreligious and immoral, but Jews descended from Abraham, circumcised into the covenant of God, as well as wonderful baptized believers. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is why Paul says in verse 11, it is evident by the law itself. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The law itself makes this clear. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament scripture that Paul quotes above isn't true. That he who does them, that he who fulfills the requirements of the law shall live. The problem is nobody has done them or can do them except Jesus. Jesus followed the law perfectly and received the life that was promised through the law. But he chose to bear the penalty that our lawlessness deserved so that we might reap the benefits of his perfect obedience. That is, he bore the wrath and he offered us the life through faith. As we discussed last week, this was always the plan. Faith in Jesus was always the plan. And Jesus living as the only perfect human being and redeeming the first Adam was always the plan. And the dreadful reality of the law was it was given to condemn. It was given to expose sin. It was given so that people would see their sin and their inability to be righteous on their own and to look to our gracious God for mercy. As Matt quoted a few weeks ago from James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And so justification through the law is impossible. The law leaves us hopeless, but there's good news. There is an alternative to justification through works of the law, and that is Jesus. We were condemned. We were under the curse of the law. And the only way to get out from under that curse is not by what we do, but what Christ has done. He has ransomed us. He has redeemed us. He's set us free from the curse of the law, from the bondage. And the way he did this, Paul says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And just to make sure that we understand that this was the same curse that we were living under for our disobedience, Paul quotes Deuteronomy again, chapter 21, verse 23, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And just for a little background here in Judaism, every criminal who was sentenced to death by the Mosaic law and executed 
typically by stoning. I mean, we're in the Bible reading plan. We just found out a lot of reasons you get dead in the Old Testament, right? There's a lot. So they'd be stoned, and then they would be fixed to a stake or hanged on a tree as a sign of their divine rejection, that they had been condemned by the law, and the curse of the law now rested upon them. And just to be clear, the person is not cursed by God because they're hung on a tree, but rather being hung on a tree was an outward sign in Israel that a person had been cursed by God, that they had been condemned by the law. So when Jesus' death was described as being hanged on a tree, even though it was through Roman law rather than Jewish, we shouldn't be surprised that the Jews couldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. How could the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, be hanging on a tree rather than reigning on a throne? It wasn't just a mission fail in their eyes. From their understanding, it was God's divine judgment. And in a way it was. And the fact that Jesus died hanging on a tree remained for the Jews an insurmountable obstacle to faith until they saw that the curse he bore was for them. The condemnation he bore was not his own. He didn't die for his own sins, but rather he became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, Christ bore our curse on the tree so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. The blessing is available to all, but it is not for all. It's reserved for those who believe by faith, who trust in the saving work of Jesus who realize the futility and the impossibility of trying to be righteous through the law and trust in the saving work of Jesus to bring justification and eternal life. Christ accomplished that which we never could. And he offers all the blessings of his righteousness through faith. What Paul does in our text this morning is compelling. He pulls from the law and the prophets to show the Galatians and these Judaizers and to show us that God's plan of salvation and his promises have never wavered. Moses spoke of these two streams to pursue life. And he spoke about these two destinies, blessing and curse. And while we all want the blessed life, the reality is that through all our acts of righteousness and merit, we all lived under a curse. Every human being, 
no matter how upright, lives under that curse, which is what makes verses 13 and 14 so powerful, that Christ came to become that curse, to take on that curse so that we might be freed from it, that we might inherit the blessing. And he calls it the blessing of Abraham. So what is that blessing? Well, it's the blessing we've talked about, promised all the way back in Genesis 12, when God told Abraham, I will bless you, and that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And it was this that Abraham believed in faith. And in these verses, Paul is unfolding the, the, the promised blessing of God. It is justification. Like we are in God's favor. It's eternal life. We're received into fellowship with God. And then thirdly, we see in verse 14, it is the promise of the Holy Spirit being made alive and indwelled by God. This is the glorious threefold blessing of all who believe in Jesus. The Spirit of God now lives inside of you, empowering you for all things pertaining to life and godliness, sealing you until the day of redemption. And so, our text is clear. There are these two roads to pursue life. One leads to a curse. The other leads, leads to eternal blessing. The first road is called the law. It is called self-righteousness. And those who travel by it seek to justify themselves by themselves, by acts of righteousness and performance and comparison and achievement. And the road promises only a curse. It is life under a curse. And the second road is called faith. And those who travel by this road are people of faith. They are people who look at the saving work of Jesus as their only hope in life and death. And scripture says they inherit the blessing. The first road is trusting in our works. The second is trusting in the finished work of Jesus. And we all want life. We want eternal life. We want to be right with God, in fellowship God, with God. We want to be indwelled and empowered by his spirit. And it's promised through faith. But that doesn't mean that it's easy, right? We talked about that today, kids. It's not easy. It is a life of daily repentance, daily turning and trusting in Christ, daily putting to, to death our prideful flesh that seeks to justify ourselves by ourselves that seeks to glorify ourselves and make our name great. But the good news is that we are not alone in this struggle, in this fight. God gave us the community of believers. So we are not traveling this road of faith alone. We are together. Because along with our reconciliation with God, we have been reconciled and united with one another. 
So we don't travel alone. We're not pursuing this blessed life alone. And we don't face the struggles and the pains of this life alone. Sometimes we're running strong down the road of faith, running hard. Sometimes we're stumbling, right? We're gimp, we're tripping. And sometimes we need people to carry us. Sometimes we can't move. Like the paralytic whose friends lowered him through the, through the roof. Sometimes all we can do is trust in Jesus and be present among other believers to help us on the road. So the community of faith exists to support and walk with and care for one another. But the community of faith is also like a sanctifying experience, like your marriage. Life lived out among other believers exposes sin and exposes struggles. It exposes parts of our lives where we're still clinging to performance and appearance. It challenges these facades that we create, create around our true selves to mask our insecurities. And what I mean by this is that this idea of trying to be justified by the law in relation to, to God, it's, it's a big issue. It needs to be prayed over and it needs to be addressed, but there is a more subversive more sinister form of self-justification that exists in everyday life. One that we all deal with, yet probably seldom think about it in light of what Paul is teaching here. So let me ask you this, keeping in mind that the kids now know how to answer questions, so you've been discipled in that. Do you ever get defensive? Amen. Thank you. Do you ever get prickly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you're doing good. This is good. Are you the type of person who lashes out or recluses from relationships when challenged or questioned? Or heaven forbid you're accused of something. Don't even want to go there. Because these, amen, because these Reactions, these, these snippinesses, the cold shoulder, the walls we put up, or the anger we spout, they are an attempt to justify ourselves. Sorry. They well up in us when our righteousness or our rightness has been challenged. And something in our flesh screams out, you need to fight for your own justification. You need to let them know that you are right. You need to be heard. You need to be understood. You need to be agreed with. You need to be honored. You need to be respected. You need to be loved. And I'm going to take it. The fangs, in a sense, come out to fight for something or defend something. But that thing that we're fighting for, justification, understanding, 
love, guarding our identity, those things are already ours. They've already been given to you, not because of your perfection or performance, but through Jesus. These petty attempts to be justified before others by our own actions or to defend our own righteousness are counter to the gospel of grace. As we talked about in our mission and vision series at the beginning of the year, the commonality that we share, the thing that binds this community together is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God that we all deserve condemnation. Nice word for death. You deserve death. We all lived under a curse, but God. But God. He acted on our behalf. He made a way where there was no way. And he made that way through Jesus for us to be justified before himself to experience eternal life, and to put his spirit in us so that we might be in fellowship with him forever. What we have in common is that we are imperfect people who have been united by a perfect, righteous, and gracious God. And we are an eternal family. We once lived under the curse of the law, but Christ became that curse for us freeing us from the bondage of the flesh and death and need to justify ourselves, and he gave us all the blessings of his righteousness. So let us be a people who live and who proclaim this blessed life together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the incomprehensible links that you went to secure our redemption, to invite us into a relationship with you, to reconcile us with you and with one another. God, we thank you for your spirit that encourages and convicts and empowers us for this life as we await the return of our Savior when all things will be made new, and when our union with you and with one another will be perfected. God, until that day, we pray that we would be a people who proclaim your glory and salvation with the confidence that is ours as children of the living God. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Amen.